Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. When Pilate took Jesus, oh, sorry, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I found no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to, be, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, starting chapter 19 today, and it is getting more and more intense by the moment as we get through this narrative, as we see the fate of Jesus going to the cross at the hands of the Romans, betrayed by his own people, falsely accused by the religious leaders of his day. And it's helpful for us to stop and to reflect upon the great shame and pain that would have taken place, not only in his crucifixion, but in these days, in these hours leading up to ultimately his crucifixion. And we're told even here in just this first verse, as the religious leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate because they couldn't crucify him. They could not kill him in their own power. They had to bring him to Pilate, a Roman ruler. And just we were told in our last passage from last week, after Pilate had interacted with Jesus, he came out and said, I find no guilt in him. 
the religious leaders were not satisfied with that ruling. They asked that they would receive Barabbas instead of Jesus as the one who was going to be released. And yet, we see in our passage, Pilate continues to examine what's going on and continues to say that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And yet we begin to see what kind of man Pilate truly is. And we begin to see the effects that a crowd can have on itself and on those whom it's trying to dictate its will. But here in our first passage, after not finding any guilt in Jesus, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, the Romans are known for being particularly brutal. There is some variety of levels of flogging that may have taken place. We do know for certain that one which accompanies everybody who was to be crucified was the worst. And so we can assume from this passage that's what's happened here. Pilate wants to appease the demands of these people without ultimately crucifying Jesus. He knows Jesus hasn't done anything particularly wrong, at least not from his own um, vantage point, but that this is some sort of religious, you know, disagreement. And so he wants to meet them halfway to punish Jesus in a way that maybe would satisfy their rage. Perhaps they would have pity on him after they've seen what the Roman guards would do to a man who was flogged. One description of what this flogging would look like, we're told by a commentator, he says this, the Romans would first strip the victim and tie his hands to a post above his head. Several of them would have whips It would be made of pieces of leather. And at the end of the piece of leather would be a sharp piece of bone or lead or brass, whatever type of hard, pointy object they could find, embedded in the leather at the end. And several men on either side of the victim would flog him until they have exhausted themselves. Now, at the time, the Jews also flogged people, but they had a custom where they would only flog them 40 minus 1, so 39, because 40 kind of seemed like the most somebody would be able to endure without dying, so they would be merciful and only whip somebody 39 times. Well, the Romans had no such rule. There was no limitation to the number of stripes that somebody might receive. Here's a medical doctor's description of the physical effects of a flogging. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin. Finally, Spurting arteries, 
would cause more bleeding from the vessels that lie beneath the muscles. Finally, the skin of the back that is hanging off in long ribbons, the entire mass as an unrecognizable, torn, bleeding tissue. One of the early first century historians talked about the sight of seeing somebody who had been flogged where there would have been exposed bones. You would even perhaps be able to see the internal organs of a man who had been flogged in this way. And here we get it in one verse here that he was taken and flogged. I can't imagine witnessing such a thing, let alone experiencing it. And yet it brings to mind to us all that has been prophesied about this coming Savior. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us about the suffering of the Christ who is to come. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as a one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Oftentimes, when somebody was flogged by the Romans prior to a crucifixion, they never made it to their crosses. It was unbearable for them, or they would bleed out and die. Jesus is beginning to suffer. He is beginning to drink the cup that the Father has given to him. He, though fully in control of all that is transpiring, has submitted himself to this wicked tyrant government, to the hands of Pilate, to these Roman guards, who just a chapter ago, men like them, fell down at the word, I am. Jesus willingly submits himself having been found innocent by the one who is an authority over them. It goes on, not only in this painful, unthinkable flogging, that the soldiers, you know, they got a little carried away. And so they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on its head, and they arrayed him with a purple robe. In one of the parallel accounts, we're told that they mocked him by bowing down before him, pretending to worship him, but spitting upon him, and then giving him a scepter made of a reed, and then taking it from him and beating him with it. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him in the face, their hands. Pilate is making a spectacle out of Jesus, somebody who is claiming to be a king. King of the Jews, we'll show you what we do 
with kings of the Jews. These men, no doubt, could care less about who Jesus is or claim to be, but they did not like the Jewish nation that they ruled over. They were annoyed by them. They are taking out their frustrations on this supposed king. And so after exhausting themselves, after putting Jesus through an unthinkable punishment, a man who would have been torn to tatters stands before the people with this mocking crown and purple robe. Pilate, thinking he's done enough to appease them, with blood dripping down his face from the crown of thorns, Pilate says, Behold the man. But they weren't satisfied. The chief priests and the officers, they saw him. They saw Jesus. And they saw everything that had happened to him. And they respond by shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate is no doubt quite annoyed at this point. And he says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. They came to Pilate to get justice, to execute this judgment on this man. And and he has done the interrogation in whatever way he saw fit. And he has executed this judgment against him, even though he felt that it was not needed. And they aren't satisfied with what Pilate has done. And he says, you know what? You don't want my judgment. You deal with him. Why have you brought him to me? Three times I have found no guilt in him. Perhaps an unintentional prophetic word from the mouth of a Roman governor. The one who has no guilt in him being executed as guilty, murderer, seditious. The Jews respond to Pilate in his annoyance and say, We have a law, and according to that law, we ought, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. We're told that Pilate became more afraid. And as we read through the parallel accounts and as we see Pilate interacting with Jesus, he knows what is happening here is not right. He knows that Jesus hasn't done anything deserving of his fate. And we're told in one of the other accounts, he washes his hands. To to wash his hands of the blood of this. This man's blood is not on my hands. And you have the most damning statement, I think, in all of the New Testament. Matthew 27. The people answered, his blood be upon us and our children. If he dies in vain, if if he's wrongfully judged... Well, his blood guilt be on us and on our children.
Pilate is a weak man. Pilate is the one who is in control. He does not have to acquiesce to this crowd. He didn't have to flog Jesus. He could have easily just left them outside. And after interrogating Jesus, could have sent him out. There is nothing about this interchange where Pilate is required to do anything. And yet, Pilate is a very self-serving individual. He is one who has worked his way up to this position of authority. Even his marriage is to this woman in order to be put into this place of authority. And so he wants to protect himself. He has his own self-interest in mind, his image of what it means to be a ruler. But he's also weak because he knows what is right and he doesn't do it. In fact, he becomes more and more afraid the more and more involved he gets in the process. So he goes back to Jesus, we're told in verse 9, and he says, where are you from? He's, he's been claiming to be the Son of God, so where are you from? Jesus gives no answer. And we reminded then again back to Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to be slaughtered, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus doesn't defend himself. Jesus doesn't go out of his way to give an account for how he's unjustly being handed over. He sits in silence. Pilate, frustrated with him, says, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, don't you know who is talking to you, Jesus? Don't you know who I am? I'm Pilate. I have authority. I'm the one who can save you. I'm also the one that can kill you. I'm trying to help you out here. Talk to me. Then we get this wonderful statement from Jesus. You would have no authority over me at all. Unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you think you're in charge. You think you have authority to release me and authority to crucify me. You think you have power. Jesus says you would have no authority unless it was given to you from God. Indeed, Pilate will be held guilty for his unjust punishment of Jesus. But he goes on to say that those who handed him over, those who brought him to be crucified, their sin is even greater. Interestingly, we're told that Pilate continues to try to find a way to release Jesus. What else can I do in order to release this man? He's already flogged him. He's already dressed him up and paraded him around to shame him. 
Pilate is wicked and cruel, and yet he still has some sense of justice, some sense of wrong and unnecessary punishment. And then we see the crowd use its power to blackmail Pilate into doing what they want. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Hey, we're going to tell Caesar that you're not a good governor, that you let a king go, that a man who claimed to be king of the Jews was in your barracks, and you let him go. We told you to kill him. You're not a friend of Caesar's. What will he think when he finds out that one of his governors thinks he's better than Caesar? Doesn't need to follow the rules. Well, if we know anything about Caesars in general, but the Caesar in particular at this time, they were always very suspicious. Suspicious of people aiming to take their throne. And so any hint or whisper of insurrection, especially among those closest to him, were met with the most cruel punishments. Pilate, the self-interested, weak man, weighing the odds of how this might play out for him, he gives in to the crowd. says to the Jews after executing his judgment behold your king and they cried out away with him away with him crucify him and Pilate said to them shall I crucify your king one more time you want me to crucify your king the chief priests answered we have no king but Caesar. Now, if you know much about the history of the people of Israel, especially when you get back to the books like um, Judges and 1 Samuel, where you kind of have these, these uh, hopes for a king, the rebuke is that ultimately any king over Israel, whether or not they had one at the time, was that ultimately they didn't need a king because the Lord was their king. And that if they ever did have a king, a good king like David, it was because it was the Lord's appointed king who served underneath the Lord's authority and rule and reign of his people, who was uh, anointed with the oil and the Holy Spirit to guide them. And so when we see these men proclaim that we have no king but Caesar, they're not only denying that Jesus is the king. Of course they're denying Jesus, but what they have done is committed perhaps the most central apostasy they could have. Caesar is the king of Israel. Their loyalties lie with that man over there in Rome. A good profession of faith here would have been, we have no king but the Lord. And they deliver him over to be crucified. 
power of a crowd cannot be underestimated. The frenzy that people can whip themselves into is very powerful. It can have an effect on a ruler so that he is no longer able to do the right thing. It can cause the ruler to be annoyed, to feel pressure to do certain things. They want to keep the status quo, to keep things as they are. And so when a crowd, an insurrection rises up, they seek to appease it, to sustain their own comforts. So we see in Pilate a weak ruler who is influenced by a crowd, perhaps the worst type of society to live in is one that is ruled by a mob. And yet that is what is beginning to happen here before Pilate. The puppet ruler who is giving in to the whims of the crowd. And yet it is not just the ruler who is affected by the crowd, but it is the very crowd themselves who have disregarded all of their sense of morality and justice. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about how the people of Israel had the most just, merciful system, where there had to be multiple witnesses, and the benefit of the doubt went to the defendant, and there was all of these place, these uh, things in place in order to make sure that innocent people wouldn't be charged falsely. But the religious leaders, the chief priests, they didn't care. They began to think as a crowd and disregard their sense of moral uprightness and justice. And instead began to embrace wickedness. Their hearts filled with wickedness. Last week we talked about how they didn't want to enter into Pilate's uh, compound because it would have defiled them for the Passover. We don't want to be defiled for the Passover, but we do want you to whip this man until he's almost dead, and then that won't be good enough, and then we want you to kill him. Because that's what truly godly people do. The irony is too thick to cut. A crowd can even cause the people within it to turn to their enemies in order to accomplish their goals. Right? You've heard the old proverb, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. These people hated the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew that the Romans hated insurrection, Jews. And so they made Jesus into an enemy of the empire so that they could make Pilate their friend. It's tempting for us to think that this would go down differently in our day. But I think if Jesus were to show up now, I don't know what the modern equivalent of this scene would be, but the crowds of people would want the same thing. They would have whipped themselves into a frenzy, not because of any moral uprightness or justice, but because of the ends they want to accomplish and the ways in which Jesus threatens our own ends. 
Large crowds wouldn't show up to worship Jesus. They would show up to chant for him to be put to death. It can be tempting for us in our context where people want to say that Jesus was a good man. That's really what it's all about. Jesus was a good man. Look at how good he was. The people at the time when Jesus was alive didn't think he was a good man. You don't whip good men. You don't crucify good men. You don't hand good men over to the Romans. The people that lived at the time when Jesus was around did not consider him good. Except for a select few whom the Father had given to him. But perhaps the most important thing for us to see in this passage today, especially as we look at Isaiah 53 and as we look to the passages before us, is that we have a temptation in our own day to think that sin is no big deal. And this passage couldn't be any more clear. When we read about the details of a flogging, when we see the humiliation of what Jesus went through, when we consider even for a moment the amount of pain and torment he must have suffered. Not to mention that it was all on a man who in himself had no guilt. We ought to see in these wounds our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus came willingly, in control, knowing that the authority given to Pilate to do these things to him was from God himself. And he does it willfully because it's the punishment that was needed for your forgiveness and for mine. I don't know how many times Jesus was whipped. I'm sure if the Romans were able to, he would have been whipped for every single one of our sins. Which is uncountable. But what we have in this image here is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Willingly enduring, drinking the cup from the Father. And it ought to cause us to be filled with such gratitude and sobriety that we would see this heinous act and remember that it was supposed to fall to us, but instead it has fallen to another, one to whom it never ought to have fallen to But Jesus taking upon himself our sin and the punishment that it deserves stands as our king bleeding down his face from his crown. The great irony in this passage is that Jesus is proclaimed as king in a word of mockery when truly he is the most glorious king. We could imagine a king that would subject himself to a criminal's death. Not weak like Pilate, but one who is willing to bear the burden of his people. Not influenced by a crowd, but in control the whole time. 
May we not make light of what Jesus has endured. May we look to it with great gratitude. May it cause us to reflect on our own sin and see its heinous nature. May it cause us to live sober lives full of thanksgiving. And as we get to the cross, may that continue to well into our hearts, knowing that Jesus had us in mind as he endured these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus bore our sins in his body in such a heinous way, Lord, it's unthinkable for us to grasp. Father, help us to cherish the great gift we've received, that the Passover lamb here as he is being prepared to be slain died so that we could be passed over and our sins forgiven. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see our sins for what they truly are. May we turn to him for our forgiveness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.